0: Matthew chapter 12. Today we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 21. Are we ready to go here? All right, Matthew 12, 1 through 21. Uh, Before we get into this, uh, let me just mention this, though, that uh, as a way of reminder that in the first days of Jesus' ministry, you remember he was very popular. Uh, For example, one of his most popular sermons is uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5 through 7. There were many people who were following Jesus. In fact, the end of chapter 4 says people were coming from all regions, you know, north, south, east, west, even the Decapolis being the 10 cities. He's very popular. But in time, the Jewish establishment came to see that Jesus' works as well as his teaching were incompatible with their position. In fact, they viewed Jesus as a threat to their position, their wealth, their fame. So they came to oppose Jesus. And so for the last two chapters here of Matthew, we have seen the opposition to Jesus, it's beginning to develop. It's it's growing, if you will. Remember, he's up in Galilee, the northern region there in, in in Israel. And and so far this opposition hasn't been too bad. But now the situation changes here in Matthew. We see more of a fierce opposition from the Jewish leaders. It, it's coming to the forefront, if you will, this opposition. And chief among the leaders were the Pharisees. The Pharisees kind of become uh, a backdrop uh, here, if you will, of the opposition. And it's, it's these Pharisees, this elite body of religious professionals that Matthew brings before us here in Matthew chapter 12. In fact, <laughs> you, you'll see the name or uh, the title Pharisee used quite a bit. And one of the first things we see here in Matthew chapter 12 is the controversy over Sabbath labor. The controversy over Sabbath labor. Look at the accusation that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, "Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath." I'll stop there for a moment. You can see in the the uh, painting here uh, got some people going through. One's riding on the donkey, another's walking through a grain field. And I'll put that there for you. Hopefully, you can understand a little bit of what was going on at that time, what's going on here. So, unlike today, where we got clear divisions of paddocks and fields, and roads and these sort of things, and fences and that sort of thing, but uh, today we got roads go ar- going around properties, right? For the most part. But in the ancient world, roads went right through fields. So, uh, what would happen is you'd have a, a, a walking path and the grain would come right up to the walking path and it would be on both sides of the walking path kind of like sort of like what you see in that that picture there and so the, the scripture said that the disciples were hungry and so as they're walking along they would just they would pick some grain as they were walking along to eat by the way, that was not stealing they, they weren't stealing uh, because travelers according to the Old Testament law, were allowed to do this. It was normal. In fact, the Bible even says they could do this. God gave them the right to do that. So, notice the Pharisees, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know if they're following Jesus or what here, just being nosy or what, but anyway, they, they see this, and so the immediate cause of the Pharisees' opposition was Jesus' disregard of their detailed rules for how to keep the Sabbath. Jesus was not breaking the law, by the way. He was not disobeying God. And he wasn't even breaking the, uh, the civil laws of that time. That was, Like I said, it wasn't stealing to do that. The problem was the rules, the, the Pharisees' rules were difficult to follow. They were a burden to, to all to bear. Which is why, remember, at the end of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. in in total contrast to the Pharisees' burden, which was heavy and was not easy. Many Jews kept the Sabbath in the right spirit, just as some Christians today uh, decide to set set aside an entire Lord's Day. But what was the problem then here? What was the problem? Well, the problem was the Pharisees had added man's regulations onto God's law. So they didn't want to break God's law, so what they would do to protect themselves not break God's law, they added all these string of other little things, not little, some of them were big, uh, to, so, to help them not break God's law. And in the process, they became very legalistic, and they judged each other and other people uh, based on the keeping of these man-made regulations. Well, the law said that this is God's law in Exodus 16, said that uh, one was not to travel on the Sabbath. By the way, the Sabbath—I hope you know this—started Friday night at 6 p.m. and went to Saturday night 6 p.m. And so the Pharisees they they asked, "Well, what actually constitutes traveling?" They wanted to obey, obey God's law. Well, what constitutes traveling? And so their answer, well, in answer to that, they actually developed something that was called the Sabbath day journey. God didn't specify, you know, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath or anything like that. And so the Sabbath day journey was roughly 1,000 meters or 3,000 feet that you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath. So a man could walk that far on the Sabbath, but if he went farther than that, the Pharisees considered that sin even one step Farther. However, what they would do, you know, because you know that's that's kind of that's a heavy burden, right? Uh, what they would do is they would they would they would tie a rope, uh, you know, around wherever they were living. And so, if a rope was tied across the end of a street, the whole street technically became one whole dwelling place. So, if you could imagine, they, if they had a really long rope, well, then you could end up walking a really long way. And so in that case, a person could walk 1,000 meters beyond that rope and still not break the Sabbath day journey law that the Pharisees had come up with. The law also forbade the carrying of a load in Jeremiah 17. But you'd say, well, okay, well, what's a load? What is a load? I mean, here, I'm just giving you some examples of the kind of uh, burdens the Pharisees put on people. Pharisees answered that a load was uh, uh, anything that you carried, anything you carried. So if you if you had a cloak or a coat or something like that, for example, and you actually carried it. Well, that was a load, and you were breaking God's law. But then they came up with, well, okay, how do we get around that? Because that's that's kind of difficult to obey. Well, they decided, well, you know, if I carry, if I actually put my coat on. And 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 walk around with it, and then I take it off and put it in my bedroom. Well, then then I'm okay. Well, the law also forbade work, and here's how their logic worked. As I was I was, I was doing some reading from from the Pharisees' writing, it, it was quite interesting, quite sad in many ways too. For example, is spitting work? You know, if you you, you know you, you spit on the ground, for example, is that considered work? Well, the Pharisees. They had a whole heap of rules, all right? And here's how they answered that. Well, it depends on what happens to the spit when it hits the ground. If the spit goes into the dirt and makes a slight furrow, then it's plowing, which is work. If the spit hits a rock, what do you think the Pharisees said about spit hitting rock? What what do you think? Does that work or not? Well, they actually said if it hits a rock, then it's not work because it wasn't doing any plowing. Well, <clears throat> I mean, that, that's, that's, they had heaps of rules, all right? You get the point? In, in fact, in all, the Pharisees had established 39 categories of work. 39 categories of work. That was actually prohibited to do on the Sabbath. And by the way, of the 39, reaping was one of the things you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So they're looking at, the, at Jesus' disciples here, as they're walking along picking grain they're looking at it as reaping which in their eyes was work now god never said that was work but in their eyes it was right so that's the that's the situation and that's why they're accusing their rabbi jesus because he's the leader of them hey you're breaking god's law the sabbath oh which is very very sacred to them. So according to the Pharisees, by plucking grain, the disciples were guilty of reaping, right? You get the point? And by the way, they said, you know, if you rub it in your hands, you're guilty of threshing. If you blow off the chaff, they're guilty of winnowing. And so, you know, you you put all those things together, as far as they were concerned, the disciples were actually preparing a meal, and according to their law, all of those things were forbidden. So how did Jesus answer the Pharisees? Well, he actually gives a two-part answer. He doesn't just give... Jesus usually doesn't just give simple answers. He gives a two-part answer, and the first answer he gives is actually an example from Jewish history, Israel's history. He actually goes back to what they considered their greatest king, King David. I've given you a picture in in here. Here's King David. He, he actually, according to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, he actually ate the showbread out of the temple. Oh, wow. And the point of that, by the way, that Jesus is doing here, he's, saying, he's showing us here and the Pharisees that the Sabbath does not restrict deeds of necessity. The Sabbath does not restrict deeds of necessity. Eating, of course, is a necessity. So look look at the first example of this two-part response Jesus gives in verse 3. Verse 3. So here's his response to the Pharisees. He said to them, the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he ate, or how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him but only for the priest. now you need to understand a little bit of jewish old testament law to understand what's going on there right okay god had told the israelites you need to have 12 loaves of bread in the temple in the, in the holy area there right not everybody you know not everybody could just walk in there and eat that stuff that was considered sacred right only the priests but David comes along, he's hungry, his men are hungry, and uh, the priests didn't have any other food to give except that, so the priest gave that food to David, and David ended up giving it to his, to his men. So this is a, a familiar story, it's in 1 Samuel 21. The Pharisees should have known this, and not only should they have known it, they should have understood it, which is why Jesus says there in verse 3, have you not read? They didn't understand Well, here's the facts. Okay, David had been anointed as king, king over Israel, all of Israel. Uh, but at first he was hated by King Saul, and of course Saul wanted to kill David. So David ended up fleeing. He goes to, according to 1 Samuel 21, he goes to the town of Nob to, to save his life. Uh, and so when David arrives, the Bible says he's hungry, his men are hungry, and he asked the priest for food, and of course, there's nothing to eat but those 12 loaves that were in the temple. The priest gives the bread to David. David eats it. And the men eat. So, if the Pharisees had understood this story, they would have known that their particular approach to the Sabbath was fundamentally wrong, since <laughs> they're, they're not able to understand and, and explain this particular incident. They're not able to. So if David was right, then his need at that moment actually replaced the normal rules that God had given in the Old Testament. And by the way, David was right, because Jesus Jesus is interpreting that for us, that what David did was correct. He was not sinning in doing that. Neither was the priest sinning and giving that bread to David and his men. So the Pharisees should have known that the law was actually given to help people, not to hinder them. That's the first example: was was David eating the showbread. The second example, David, or sorry, that Jesus gives, is the priest worked in the temple. No, this was normal; even on the Sabbath, priests worked in the temple. So look what Jesus says in verse five. He says, "Or have you not read in the law?" how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless whoa notice Jesus says wait a minute they're profaning the Sabbath but yet Jesus says they're also guiltless <laughs> so what's the point here I've given you a picture of a priest working in the in the temple there maybe you can understand what's going on well the priests worked on the Sabbath of course they did they worked every day Uh, They would do things like burning incense. They would change the bread. Uh, uh, They they would uh, offer burnt offerings. Those are just some of their duties. So by referring to this particular practice here, Jesus showed that some work actually took priority over Sabbath laws. So that's why Jesus says they were guiltless. Yes, they were working on the Sabbath, but they're guiltless. And since Jesus went on to say that there is one that's actually greater than the temple, which, by the way, he was referring to himself when he said that, he was teaching that the work that he was doing was more important than the Sabbath regulations. Now, there's also a suggestion here, listen carefully, that the kingdom that Jesus Christ was bringing would replace the Old Testament dispensation. So we even see Christ, he's hinting at it here, if you will. So what does Jesus do next? So he's continuing to talk to the Pharisees, and he actually gives three powerful statements in these next verses. Three powerful statements. He he gives uh, number one in verse 6. Look what he says in verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. By the way, he's referring to himself when he says that. Jesus is saying, I am greater than the temple. Whoa. You've got to understand the Jews to understand just how powerful of a statement that that Jesus is making there. Because as far as they're concerned, man, that's that's where God's special presence is, and there's nothing greater than that. So Jesus is, is claiming to be God when he makes these statements. And as far as they're concerned, Jesus was not the Messiah. So Jesus points to himself here, not as not just greater than the priest in fact Jesus is saying I'm greater than the priest, I'm greater than the whole sacrificial system I'm greater than than the temple and everything it represents. whoa so the point is that if the temple service took priority over the Sabbath, then guess what Jesus and his whole ministry have even greater authority over the Sabbath. why? because Jesus replaced. The priest, the sacrifices, and the temple. The next powerful statement that Jesus gives is in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, And if you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. By the way, notice Jesus calls his own disciples guiltless. He said, if you would understand what Hosea 6, verse 6 says, you would not have condemned my disciples who were guiltless. So Jesus says God demands mercy rather than sacrifice. And and the word uh, mercy there is, is often translated loving kindness. So he's saying that mercy or loving kindness here is more important than religious ritual. While that's important, he's not denying that. There are things that are greater that trump religious ritual. And mercy is one of those. There's a third powerful statement that Jesus gives in verse 8. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The word Lord there, the Greek word karios, stresses the fact that Jesus has absolute authority over the Sabbath. In other words, he is the cosmic Lord, He is the, as well as the final interpreter of the law. We saw that in Matthew chapter 5. He is the final interpreter of the law. He didn't come to destroy or abolish the law. He came to fulfill. He's, he interprets it. Now remember, Jesus has not abolished the law. He, he himself said, I have come to fulfill it. And here he is providing the true factors for the people of God to experience the Sabbath rest. By the way, you, you'll see that that idea, Sabbath rest, is not just something in the Old Testament. In fact, look what Hebrews says. The book of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is superior to everything. And I want you to listen to uh, oh, I didn't put it up there, but um, uh, listen to, to what Jesus or what Hebrews says about the Sabbath. In Hebrews four verse nine, it says, "There remains a Sabbath." rest for the people of God. So there is there is a sense where the Sabbath uh, continues on and will continue on, even into the future. There continues to be this Sabbath rest for the people of God. How does that happen? Well, that happens through Jesus. Well, the controversy doesn't end with that one. Of course, wherever Jesus goes, he seems to have controversy, and in, in this next section, we see a controversy over Sabbath healing. There's a controversy over the Sabbath healing. Look at the the setting of this particular controversy in, in verse nine. Verse nine, it says that he, that's Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" And then it gives the reason why they're asking this question. It says so that they might accuse him. So that's the setting, all right? The setting, of course, is in the Jewish synagogue, and we see that Jesus encounters a man here in, in their, their synagogue. Man has a withered hand. Scripture says. Now, if you look at the companion passage in Luke chapter six, Luke six tells us it was the the right hand of the man. And if you're right-handed like me, and, and your right hand is the hand that you predominantly use, and the one that you love, you write with, and work with, this is emphasizing the seriousness of this particular situation. And the word withered, by the way, it means dried up, and it, it, it could actually mean shriveled or paralyzed. So this this man, I don't know if his hand's all shriveled up, or if it, it just doesn't work, or what, but the point is the man's in a sad he's in a sad condition I mean, you think about it at this particular time there is no such thing as a, as welfare he okay? can't go to the government and say hey i can't work you know give me some money he can't do that in that time everyone worked with their hands and so he would have been seriously handicapped no pun intended and so Again, the Pharisees are there, and and they're ready for Jesus. As as it says in verse 10, they want to accuse Jesus. And that's what they do in verse 10. Now, the question is valid here. The question being, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That's That's a valid question. And the law was specific. The law said that someone could heal on the Sabbath, if and only it was a life-threatening situation. If it was not life-threatening, then you had to wait till the next day. Come back and see me tomorrow. Right? That's, that's what happened. So, in their mind, Jesus is thinking about committing an illegal act. It's as if they can read Jesus' mind. They know where Jesus is going to go. Jesus, heals, Jesus sees someone who needs healing and they're thinking, oh no, Jesus is going to heal somebody on the Sabbath. What is Jesus' response here? Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? By the way, that's a rhetorical Question. By rhetorical, it means it has an obvious answer. Jesus already knew the answer, and so did the Pharisees. Everybody knew the answer to this question, right? Okay. Now you probably don't have a sheep, but if you did, right? All right. So if you don't have a sheep, then I don't know. Say, put your car in the ditch, right? What are you going to do? Just leave your car in the ditch? No, you're going to you're going to get the car out of the ditch. That's the idea here. All right. It, it's Serious situation. Look at verse twelve. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. <laughs> Let's stop there. Uh, Matthew's really emphasizing the the complete healing here, isn't he? I mean. Matthew, all, all he had to do was say, you know, that the man stretched it out. But, but no, Matthew's emphasizing, no, it was restored. In fact, notice Matthew says it was healthy like the other arm in hand. Matthew's really emphasizing complete, total healing here. So Jesus' response, oh, I've got four points I want to make on his, on his response here. Number one, Jesus says it is good to save an endangered sheep on the Sabbath. That's a good thing. But, oh, somebody's going to cry foul. Wait a minute, isn't that considered work? Yeah, it's work, but Jesus says it's good to save an animal who is in danger, even on the Sabbath. And then Jesus uses the lesser to the greater argument, moving from an animal to a human being. In verse 12, he says that a person is more valuable than a sheep. So, Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He says, okay, we'd all saved the sheep on the Sabbath. So are you going to ignore a human being then on the Sabbath? So Jesus is moving from the lesser to the greater. And number three, he says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And in fact, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says this. I think I put that up there, didn't I? No, maybe not. Mark chapter 2, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in the fourth response we see here in verse 13, Jesus healed this handicapped man. By the way, Jesus did not break the Old Old Testament Sabbath law or even the rabbinic restrictions. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that that he stretched forth his hand to work. He didn't touch. He didn't hold the man. The Bible says Jesus spoke. That's it. He simply speaks and the man's healed. Jesus didn't do any work. And in the process, Matthew is really showing the foolishness and the the falseness of the Pharisees' reaction to him in his ministry. Well, speaking of reaction, look at the Pharisees' reaction in verse 14, or the Pharisees' response in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out, and conspired against him how to destroy him. Whoa. Let me ask you this. Why did the Pharisees hate the Lord Jesus Christ so much? Why did they hate the Lord Jesus Christ so much? Why why are they having this kind of response? I mean, did, did Jesus do something illegal? Did he do something immoral? Did Jesus do something Unbiblical? No, he didn't do any of that sort of thing. So why are they having this kind of response? (laughs) Well, he was breaking their rules, of course. And you don't break the Pharisees' rules, you naughty, naughty boy. And they hated him for that. But underlying that hatred here was the fact that Jesus is holy, and they were not. Jesus is good, they're not. Jesus had true authority from God, and they didn't. And what I'm trying to say is what John says: the darkness hates the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So here's the bottom line: Jesus is the Messiah, and they don't want him to be. They don't like that. Now Jesus proceeds to move on from here, and we we come to verse 15. We got a little transition in this passage and we get to see Jesus who is the humble servant. Jesus is the humble servant here in this in these next few verses but look at the Messiah's work. Jesus is clearly the Messiah he's already showed us that but he has ministry to continue doing and look at verse 15. Jesus aware of this. What is he aware of? Well that's verse 14. He's he's aware of this conspiring against him that they want to destroy him. Well Guess what? Jesus knows everything. He knows it's not his time yet to to go to the cross. And so since Jesus was aware of this, look what he does. He withdrew from there, verse 15, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Whoa. (laughs) So Jesus understands this is not his time yet. He, He continues on his ministry, doing you know, he's, he's going to avoid those Pharisees. He doesn't want people to proclaim him the Messiah and, and all that sort of thing yet. He had a work to do, and he continued doing that all the way to the very end, didn't he? But these next verses, I want to I focus on these next verses, starting here in verse 17. These are beautiful verses. And they're coming from Isaiah chapter 42. We see the Messiah's task This is the Messiah's task, coming from Isaiah chapter 42, specifically verses 1 through 4. Let's read this together. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he says, according to Jesus. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. That's God the Father speaking. God the Father says, I will put My Spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon Him, and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench, until He brings justice to victory. And in His name the Gentiles will hope." Let me just take those phrases, and and let's let's meditate on them for a moment, okay? We see the Messiah's task here in these verses. But what specifically is the Messiah's task? Number one, uh, by the way, let let me say this. As I was studying this, I found out there's actually eight future tense verbs in verses 18 through 21. Eight future tense verbs. You say, what does that mean? What's the point? Well, the point is, Matthew's intention here is to show that these particular prophecies, which were Isaiah's prophecies, were actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled them all. Right. That's the point. They were future. And they were fulfilled in Christ. All right, so Messiah's task, number one. Messiah will bring justice to the earth. The Messiah will bring justice to the earth. In other words, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He will bring justice to the earth. Notice it says in verse 18 that this servant is Jesus, and God the Father is the one who chose him for this ministry. He is beloved. And God the Father put the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ. And what, what are we seeing in, in all of verse 18 here is that the Gentile mission once again is in view. Matthew is not letting us get away from this. The Messiah is not... It, or let me put it this way. He didn't just come for his people Israel, but he came for all nations. That, and, and we see that building up even to the, the last chapter of Matthew. We see the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that he, he came with all authority in heaven and in earth to make disciples of all nations. So Messiah is going to bring justice to the earth. Number two. Messiah will go about his work quietly and humbly. They didn't understand that. See, they they had a they had a, a a picture of the Messiah as being this this conquering king. See, the problem was, you'll see a conquering king image in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, but they were mixing together Christ's first coming and his second coming prophecies, which that's understandable. They didn't have the New Testament so you got to give him a break there right so his first coming he's coming as this he's just going to be quiet and humble but wait wait for his second coming that's when he's coming as the conquering king verse 19 says he will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets so jesus reaction to the loud persistent opposition of the pharisees is to strike back right I'm going to strike back. I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to get vengeance on you guys. Is that what he does? No. No, that's not what he's all about. He didn't retaliate, at least verbally. He could have, but he didn't. His public proclamation will be positive, not negative. It will be related to the good news rather than defending himself against those leaders. Well, we'll make some application on this in a moment. But uh, let's move on to number three. Number three, Messiah will not trample on the weak or those who are poor in spirit. Well, I can't say it any better. In fact, this commentator says it way better than I could ever say it. He's been very helpful in me understanding this this beautiful, beautiful passage here in verse 20. So I'll, I'll we'll look at the commentator in a moment. But look at verse 20. Because Jesus is this, talking about Jesus. that that he looks at us as a bruised reed, and he says he will not break that bruised reed. He looks at us as a smoldering wick, which he will not quench. What does that mean? Look look what this commentator says. I quote him on the screen. A reed might be used as a flute, a measuring rod, a pen, and in many other ways. Reeds grew plentifully and were cheap. The natural thing was to discard an imperfect reed and replace it with a better one. But the Lord's servant does not discard those who can be likened to shattered reeds, first broken ones. A perfect reed is at best fragile, so the imagery emphasizes weakness and helplessness. The same truth is brought out with the reference to a smoking wick. A wick that functioned imperfectly was, well, it was a nuisance. It would not give out good light, and its smoldering released a certain amount of smoke. The simple thing was to snuff it out and throw it away. A little bit of flax did not cost much, so replacing it was the normal procedure. It took time and patience and the willingness to take pains to make anything useful out of a bruised reed or a smoking wick. People in general would not take the trouble. In a similar fashion, most of us... Regard the world's down and outs is not worth troubling ourselves over. We do not see how anything can be made of them. But love and care and patience can do wonders. And so I hope you find that helpful in understanding what uh, verse 20 is talking about there. Jesus describes us as bruised reeds, as smoldering or smoking wicks. You know, you ever burned a candle? You know how how candles will come down to the very end, and you you start to see the light is starting to go. It's going, it's going. As the wax, all the wax is gone, the light starts going out out, and eventually, all you get is a little smoke trail coming up from the wick. What do you do with that? Well, most of us we throw it away, right? Jesus says, "No, I will not throw you away. If you're a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, I will not." Throw you away. I will not quench you. Beautiful imagery. The Messiah is not going to trample on the weak or those who are poor in spirit. Number four, we continue looking at the Messiah's task here. Verse 21, we see the Messiah will bring salvation to the Gentiles. To bring salvation to the Gentiles. In verse 21, it says, In his name the Gentiles will hope. That's in Jesus' name the Gentiles will hope. So what do we see here? This is beautiful because I don't think any of us are Jews. We're all Gentiles as far as I know. And and, and the beauty of this is that the benefits of Christ's atonement were offered to all nations. The the Gentiles were everybody else who was not a Jew or an Israelite or a Hebrew. So guess what? If you're a Gentile, you've benefited from Messiah's ministry, haven't you? Which goes all the way back. By the way, to Genesis chapter twelve, verses one through three, we see the Abrahamic covenant, which says that in him, Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's you. Me. So, if you've been beaten by life, you're that bruised. You're, sorry, you're that bruised reed that Jesus is talking about. If you are weak in faith, you're that. You're like that smoldering wick, that little smoking wick that's going out and you're in a position to benefit. So have you been buffeted by life? Is your faith weak? If so, my friend, be encouraged. Be encouraged by Jesus' ministry, by His life and work. Jesus did not come to snuff out anything that was weak. Instead, what do we see? He came to fan that smoking wick into a flame. He came to straighten and and to strengthen bent rods. Praise God for that. We're all bent rods. (laughs) Every one of us. Aren't you glad he did not come to execute justice at this time? Now it talks about justice here. Because if you look at the end of verse 20, it says, Until he brings justice to victory. Aren't you glad he didn't come to bring justice now? You, You don't want what you deserve. You don't. Justice will be done. It will happen in God's timing. But judgment is something that we see in Scripture that's inevitable in in a universe that's ruled by a just and a holy God. Justice will happen. Judgment will come. But today is the day of God's grace. And my friend, you and I can live because of Jesus in His ministry. He's the one who saves. He alone saves, strengthens, and keeps all who will repent and turn to Him. Have you repented? Have you turned to Jesus Christ? He alone can say. Well, let's, in, in our last remaining moments here, let's think of some application quickly, okay? I've just got a few points I want to make to you. Number one, Jesus should be your Lord. One of the things this passage is showing us that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is Lord of, of, of priests, sacrifices, the temple, he's greater than the temple. And as a result of that, he should be your Lord. He's Lord of all. He's sovereign over everything, not just the Sabbath, not just the temple, not just religious laws. But he's he's Lord over all religious laws and our conduct and our behavior. One commentator said this. It's on the screen for you. Quote, with a sovereign freedom, Jesus exalts himself above all those realities that the people of God held dearest what did they hold dearest? Well, he says what they are here. The Sabbath day, the sanctuary temple, and the scripture law, end quote. Jesus holds himself and exalts himself over all those things. He's Lord. And you know what that means? It means he's your master. He's your master in every area of your life. You don't get to choose to do whatever you want because your life is not your own. Scripture says, if you're a believer, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Number two, second application is this, mercy triumphs over legalistic observance. Mercy trumps, if you will, if you like that imagery. It triumphs. Now, many today have still not learned this particular lesson, even though it's in the Scriptures. And so, here's what ends up happening sometimes. with Sometimes we, we can end up like the Pharisees in, in more ways than we want to admit. We end up with more don'ts than do's. You know what I mean by that? We end up with, with more things of thou shalt not. And in the process, we become very legalistic, just like the Pharisees. But at the same time, let, let, me, let me say, that's one of the pendulum swings, the, the extremes. Let me give you the other extreme, all right? Here's another extreme you need to avoid. For too many Christians, the Lord's Day is, well, basically relegated to one hour out of the whole day. You know, they go to church for that one particular hour, and the rest of the day they live it just like it's Saturday. Well, I hope you understand that the Lord's Day should be a day of rest, should be a day where you focus on God and His Word. It shouldn't be just like any other day. How you, how you do that, that's, up, that's between you and God. But don't let it just be another day. Let it be different. Number three, love and mercy are your priority. Love and mercy are your priority. Too often today, legal precedent has priority over individual needs. And it, and it, and it happens in, in Christian organizations and churches and families and businesses all over the world. Let me give you an example. Sometimes Christian organizations sometimes protect themselves by making rules so they don't have to deal with individual uh, situations. They want to protect themselves, e- even in Christian organizations. They don't really want to show love and mercy to people. No, they want to protect their, their bank accounts or their whatever they want to protect. And as a result, people's needs are not met. Justice is sacrificed on the altar of convenience, and in some cases on the altar of policy. Oh, sorry, uh Mr. or Mrs. So and so, it's it's not our policy. And we can't change policy. You heard that kind of language before? Well, sadly that's what happens. But love and mercy needs to be our priority. Jesus established that that, that particular basis here, did he not? Every rule that you come up with. Okay, rules aren't bad in and of themselves. Every rule that we as a church comes up with or whatever organization you're in, that those rules need to be for the good of individual people, not just to protect the, the corporate bank account or whatever else, right? Love and mercy needs to be the priority. Number four, there is no neutrality with Jesus. You cannot be neutral, <laughs> all right? Uh, by neutral, I mean you're you're not going forward, you're not going in reverse, you're you're just kind of stuck in neutral. You're not going anywhere, right? You're you're sitting on the fence, so to speak, right? The leaders of Israel could not accept Jesus' absolute claims, and what did they do? They, well, I can't accept Jesus. He, I don't think he's the Messiah, so I'm going to plot to take his life. That's what they did. Jesus, by the way, confronts every person with the light of God and he forces us to make a decision. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. Okay, You cannot be neutral with Jesus. You either accept him or reject him. There there is no middle ground. There's no other choice, no other option. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's God in the flesh, and, and he is the only path to salvation. In fact, Jesus himself said that. You cannot get to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So we can accept or we can reject, but we, we have to confront this issue, every one of us. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, this is the issue. You will get eternal life or you get the lake of fire. There, that's it. And it's whether or not you rejected God's Son. Do you accept Him or you reject Him? If you don't accept Him, you reject Him. That's, that's what happens. Neutrality is not an option. Number five, we must believe that Jesus is the gentle servant. We must believe Jesus is the gentle servant. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. He's that meek and humble Messiah who is here to serve God the Father and us, all of mankind. And how do you see this best? This is seen best, of course, in the the, the ministry that Christ did on the cross. He became the atoning sacrifice, not just for the Jews, by the way, but also for you and me who are Gentiles, next we application is this. God's people are to be servants, just like Jesus. You are to be conformed to the image of Christ, Scripture says. And Jesus is the perfect example of righteousness. By the way, righteousness is right living. He's the perfect example of right living. So if you're a Christian, guess what? That makes you a part of God's people. And God's people are to show humility just as Christ did. So let me ask you, how, how about you? How are you doing? How are you doing in that area? Are you a servant? Are you humble? I know none of us are perfect in this way, but, but are you at least trying? you praying for God to give you the grace to be humble and to be a servant? should be. Last. Here's my last application for you. Servants do not fight back, but trust God. This is something we see over and over in Scripture. It's what we see here. It's the example of Jesus, right? Um, don't fight, right? Now, it's different when it comes to God's glory, all right? We, we fight for God's glory, right? That's something you should fight for. That's I don't mean go and kill people. That's not what I mean. Um, we stand up for God's glory, but, but when, it's, when it's you and your pride is on the line, you don't fight. That, that's the idea. Jesus never needed to retaliate for the opposition that he suffered at the hands of, of the Pharisees and the other opponents. He didn't retaliate verbally. What did he do? He trusted in God to vindicate him. He just kept doing what was right. He tried to avoid the opposition if he could. All right he wasn't you know trying to be a martyr all right it wasn't it wasn't about him it's about god he would go and teach and heal and do what he needed to do so he centered on those who needed him he healed their bruises and strengthened their smoking wicks and this is what a true servant ministry does and what every christian should imitate how about you how you doing how you doing are you continually helping the afflicted or do you, you you look at the the afflicted the bruised reeds of this life and say too much work <laughs> man that one's really messed up whoa that's that goes to the rubbish dump is that what you do are you caring for the downtrodden I know it's a lot of work it's a lot of work to take a you know a, a wick that has no wax left in it and try to do something with that I understand that Jesus cares for the downtrodden and so should we. So How you doing? It's a high calling, isn't it? We're to be like Jesus. Can't be like him in every way, of course, but we we can uh, strive to imitate his character, his righteousness. So Jesus was constantly uh, finding opposition to him in his ministry. Guess what? We should expect the same. But we just carry on. We trust. Our lives and our ministries, our families, our, our everything, in God's hands. We trust in Him and never, never fight back. How you doing? Well, I, I hope this message has been an encouragement and an exhortation, and uh, that you if the shoe fits and wear it. And remember, never ever forget, Jesus is Lord of everything—not just the Sabbath, not just the temple, not just church. Just our sacrifices. He is Lord of everything. That's who He is. He deserves our worship, our love, our devotion, and our allegiance, and our loyalty. With all of our heart. May God help us.